Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in a Row. This is a bonus Q&A episode. Every month I field a plethora, a plethora of questions from my Patreon supporters, and I do my best to work through as many as I can. And uh, you're going to get a sneak peek into some of those questions. And then if you want the full length Q&A podcast, which is about an hour and a half or so, I think, I'm not totally sure because I haven't recorded it yet, um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in a row, become a Patreon supporter, get access to premium content like this full length episode, and you get an opportunity to ask questions. So let's go ahead and jump in with the first question. John asks, uh, what is the relationship between the church and Israel? Has the church replaced Israel? Should Christians be more concerned about Israel than any other country? Great question, John. Um, And obviously, this is very relevant in light of some recent uh, political events happening in uh, in Israel, which uh, I plan on addressing in, in due time. Well, I mean, John, there, there's several different responses to your questions, lots of different viewpoints on, on your question. Um, in fact, there's a book, if, if you're interested, it's, uh, some, I think it's called four views on Israel and the church. It's a counterpoints book where you have four different views. Uh, imagine that presented on this very question. You know, one of the, um, popular views, at least in, in the United States more recently, is what some people might refer to as like the dispensational view, that the promises made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are literal, and they will be literally fulfilled in all their detail in the future. Uh, the future from, I guess, both a, um, a New, T- New Testament perspective, like from the future of, you know, from Jesus's perspective, but also even from our perspective. And, and you know, certain dispensationalists might even look to certain current events in the 20th century, like the foundation of the, of the state of Israel, maybe various wars that often happen in the Middle East as kind of uh, evidence that uh, things are starting to take shape, that um, these things sort of precede the future um work that God's going to do among the nation state of, of Israel. There is, I mean, you mentioned, you know, has a church replaced Israel? Yeah, that, that is a view. I mean, some people have what's called a replacement view that you have, you know, the, the nation of Israel in the old Testament, then you have the church in the new Testament, and these are different entities. And, um, you know, Israel forfeited the, uh, you know, the, the, they forfeited the promises um, by living in ongoing disobedience for so many years. Um, and now the church comes along and sort of um, replaces Israel in in the program of God. I, I don't even know what I would call the view that I would hold to. I, I typically, I don't, I mean, over the last like two decades, I've just kind of moved away from adopting, you know, kind of modern paradigms as holistic ways to read scripture. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very much kind of a ground up sort of guy. Like I like to dig deep into certain biblical passages and arguments and themes. And I like, I like to look at, um, you know, Romans one to four and see what Paul's doing there. What's Paul doing in Romans nine through 11 or Galatians two to three. And, and, you know, there's, there's quite a few significant new Testament passages that, um, address this question pretty, pretty head on. What is the relationship between Israel and the church? And so, yeah, I, I I really work hard not to come to scripture with a preconceived view, like a dispensational view or an amillennial view or a replacement view, but try to see from ground up what is what is what are the New Testament authors doing um, in in these passages. So the way I describe my view without giving a label to it is I, I think that um I think that under the new covenant, 
um, Gentiles have been included into God's covenant with Israel and that ethnic boundaries have been done away with so that ethnic distinctions no longer factor into one's covenant status as they did in the Old Testament. Okay, so you can, you know, replay that a few times if you want. Like I, I try to word that pretty specifically. So so in the New Testament, I do think the concept of Israel is, you know, no longer Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Uh, so that function, like under the New Covenant, that, you know, the, the Israel of God, Galatians 6, is also called the church. Okay, so um, it's, not, it's not replacement. It, it's more, I guess you could almost call it like um, the church is the surprising maybe extension or fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Several important passages, I, I think, to really study in this regard are, well, I've already mentioned a few, you know, Romans 1 to 4, especially, especially 2 through, yeah, Romans 2 through, well, 1 to 4 is, 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 a, is a unit of thought. Uh, Romans 9 to 11 is, is almost directly addressing this question. <laughs> Unfortunately, Romans 9 to 11 is not the easiest passage to interpret. I, I think um, N.T. Wright ha- has a fantastic understanding of Romans 9 to 11. He really makes it uh, sing. He's got a, 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 an older book uh, called The Climax of the Covenant. It's a collection of scholarly essays. And he's got his essay on Romans 9 to 11 in that book. I think it's, gosh, a book that might be 30 years old by now, um, is, is absolutely stunning. It, it's an exquisite piece of uh, uh, engaging scholarship. Um, Galatians uh, 2 to 3 is an important passage. Philippians 3, Ephesians 2 to 3. So, you know, you know, in Romans 2, Paul says that circumcision of the flesh is kind of covenant marker in the Old Testament. This doesn't make you a true Jew, Paul says, but circumcision of the heart. So there he's even playing on some of these old covenant Israel-specific categories. If you have faith, Paul says, then you're a child of Abraham. Um, whereas, you know, more of an Old Testament concept of, you know, being a child of Abraham is being born ethnically Jewish. So, Again, I, I don't. I don't think replacement is is what I'm getting at. Um, as if Israel in the Old Testament was some, you know, um, completely separate entity than the thing called the Church in the New Testament. I mean, even in um, Romans eleven one is is really important. I mean, the, the whole chapter Romans eleven is important. But you know, Paul even asks, you know, did God reject His people? And then he says, by no means. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, all these examples. And and by giving himself as an example of an Israelite, a true Jew, a member of the nation of Israel, you know, Paul is a, he, he's not a part of, quote, Israel simply because he's ethnically Jewish. He's part of the true Israel because he's also a believer in Jesus Christ. And we can go in more detail there. I think that's enough to get for you to chew on. I would, again, point you to those passages that I referenced more than I would point you to my understanding of those passages. Like, just go wrestle with those passages. And and you'll you'll see, number one, the question is kind of complicated. um, But I, I don't see replacement as the best category, nor do I see a complete separation between Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. I, I think either of those are, um, don't capture the full complexity and beauty of how the New Testament treats this question. Um, so to answer your question, no, I don't think Christians should be more, I'll say theologically concerned with the modern state of Israel more than other countries. That's a very disputed statement. Uh, there's lots of people who would 
um, disagree with me, maybe even be outraged the, that I would suggest such a thing. Um, but I'm saying that based on my reading of, of several New Testament passages. Um, wh- what about the land promise? This, this often comes up, you know, um, God promised the Jewish people, the, the physical land of Israel that we know today. Now, now the boundaries today are slightly different than, than what they were in the, under the old covenant, even under the old covenant, you have different passages that speak of different boundaries, but we don't need to get into all that. But even, even uh, here's how I see it. And this is not just me. Lots of people see it this way that, um, the land promise and the land of Israel is intertwined with God's overarching promise to creation. So you have Genesis one and two, which focuses on creation as a whole. I do believe that from Genesis 12 onward, when you begin to see this focus on the land of Israel, that that promised land of Israel takes part in, in God's larger creational program. I don't know the best language you use here. Maybe it's kind of a down payment, a, a first step, a, a kind of like already, not yet, you know, land of Israel now and creation as a whole in the future. So anyway, you move from create a focus on creation, Genesis one and two to the specific land of Israel in Genesis 12 onward. And what's interesting is in the land promises, especially in Genesis, you see a lot of the language, same language, seed, blessing, curse, and so on that you see in with regard to creation in Genesis one to two or Genesis one to three. Um, so that the land of Israel participates in God's kind of overarching promise to creation. And then in the new covenant, I do believe that the that, that God's scope widens once again and takes more of a Genesis 1 to 2 perspective so that the land promises given to Israel are now going to be fulfilled under the new, new covenant in all of creation. So that, you know, Jesus doesn't say the meek will inherit the land of Israel, as in the original Psalm that he's quoting there, but the meek will inherit the earth. We now look forward, not just to the fulfillment of the strip of land in the Middle East, but we look forward to a new heavens and new earth. You begin to see this creation wide focus in terms of God's physical promises, land promises um, in scripture. The one possible exception, because so it sounds like I'm kind of writing off all focus on literal Israel, literal Jewish people, literal land. The one possible exception, and I'm not sure exactly where I land on this, is, you know, there could be some future work that God will still do among Jewish people. I'm not thinking of Israel as a nation state necessarily, um, or the physical land. Um, I'm thinking specifically of ethnic Jewish people. And the only reason why I say this is really, it's based on largely one passage, Romans 11, 25 to 30, 32, 32, um, 25, Romans 11, 25 to 32. If you just slowly read that passage, um, it seems like, and again, I'm not like completely landed on this view, but it seems like they're a solid interpretation could be that um, God will do some kind of future unique work among ethnic Jewish people in a similar way that he did a unique work among Gentiles in the first century. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps John. It's a very complicated question. I know I took almost 10 minutes, well, took over 10 minutes on that question. That's actually a very short uh, response to a complex question. So let's move on to the second question. An anonymous person asks, uh, where are your personal boundaries attending uh, or participating in a same-sex wedding? A close gay friend of mine just got engaged, so I'm having to think through this. I I would uh, quickly point you to a 
uh, fairly in-depth paper that I wrote on this called uh, Should Christians Attend a Same-Sex Wedding Ceremony? It's available for free. Well, for an email, but pretty much for free um, at centerforfaith.com. I think if you go forward slash resources, it'll take you close to where this paper is. You have, to, you have to click on a few different links here, but it's under resources on our website, centerforfaith.com. I think there's a lot of gray area, a lot of gray in this question in my response. Um, I don't think there's a black and white yes or no answer to this. Where, where I would draw the line personally, given my theological uh, convictions, is as a licensed minister, I would not perform a same-sex wedding ceremony. But let me let me let me put a wider scope on that. I wouldn't personally perform a um, wedding ceremony with any that I don't believe is whose wedding is, I don't think is being blessed by God because they're going against the God's design on whatever area. So, um, that, that would be, that's my, I, so I try to be consistent with that in, in terms of performing or officiating a wedding, uh, ceremony, because I think the, I do think there's something profoundly theological happening in that ceremony. And it's one thing to observe what's going on, We'll get to this in a second. I don't. I don't think we need to be in full agreement if you're just simply watching it. But if you're officiating it, it's almost like you're standing in the gap between God and uh, humankind. There, um, the, the the couple getting getting married. So I do think that that is theologically much more significant. And I would want to tighten in the reins a, a bit on which ones I would stand in the gap for, with regard to attending. And this would apply to also with participating. Participating does start to get even trickier, obviously. But in terms of attending, I, I, I think, again, I think it's a gray area. I don't think there's a black and white. It's sin or not sin. You should or shouldn't. I'm not going to give some categorical statement for every Christ follower and what they should or shouldn't do. Um, I remember saying this in, in a conference several years ago. You know, I, you know, I said, yeah, I think this is a gray area. And somebody yelled out, no, it's not. <laughs> Caught me off guard. And what's funny is, you know, I I don't we do we do plenty of Q and A time, but um, this particular moment was not one of those times. And um, I'm deaf in my left ear, so when I hear a noise in a big room, like I don't know where it's coming from. So it really threw me off. Like I didn't know where the voice was coming from, and they didn't like raise their hand or anything. They just kind of yelled out. So I paused, and I was so it just. Those of you who speak for a living know, like when something throws you off, you just get so confused. Like, where am I? And I sat there looking around, and people were like, "Then they started pointing at him, like he's over here." <laughs> and I felt bad for the guy. He's like, oh. anyway, um, I think it's a gray area, despite one person's objection. Uh, here, here's a few thoughts. Number one, I would say whatever your attendance policy is. Just be consistent. If you have a personal policy, I only attend weddings that match God's design, that are being blessed by God, then be consistent. Don't go to any weddings between a, a believer and an unbeliever, because that there are lots of passages that say no go on that one. Uh, maybe somebody has been like divorced unbiblically. Um, and remarried unbiblically, like there, you know, I think there's some allowances there, but if, if they are going against clear teaching of scripture there, then, then, you know, if you don't attend a wedding ceremony that falls short of, it's not being blessed by God, then, then, then be consistent. Don't attend, you know, your uncle's wedding who has been divorced and remarried five times or whatever. Um, uh, and then don't go to that wedding, but then say, well, I'm not going to go to a same sex wedding ceremony. I think that would be inconsistent. Uh, number two, what would you, what will your attendance convey? I, I'm very big on clarity, especially more recently. I just I, I I'm a big fan. Of, let's just be. I do want to be kind and clear, clear. And I think clarity is kindness. Okay, 
Isn't that Brene Brown? Didn't she? I think she coined that. Uh, what will your attendance convey? If it will give the impression to the people getting married that you fully agree with the wedding, the marriage, and you actually don't agree, then then that that you might want to clarify that a bit, or maybe don't attend. But if your attendance, if if the people getting married know you don't fully agree with their marriage, and yet you're still attending, that could convey a a a, a pretty countercultural uh, or or a pretty powerful gesture of love toward a relationship that you don't agree with a sig- significant part of that relationship but you're still willing to attend as an act of hospitality and love so so what is what is your attendance conveying to the people getting married and also number 3 do they claim to be christians um, if you have two people who claim to be christians and you believe they're fundamentally going against a serious part of god's teaching then then that needs to factor into your decision. But if they don't even claim to be Christians, um, then in a sense, they shouldn't be held to a Christian standard anyway. I'm not saying, therefore, you everybody should go if they don't claim to be Christians. I'm just saying that these are questions that should factor in to your decision-making process. But again, I would consult that paper that I referenced. It will give you a lot more detail. All right, next question. Austin wants to know, what are my thoughts on a justified lie, something like Rahab or similar situations, protecting life through lying? I, yeah, I, I've always taken the view, um, that while lying is condemned in scripture, um, there are, it it is one of several ethical norms that do have evidence of some exceptions. Uh, the example you gave is a classic one, uh, Rahab lying to the Canaanite authorities, um, Sometimes the Hebrew midwives of Exodus one are also brought into this as as a, as a, an example of lying. I don't. I, I that passage. I, I just reread it again just to make sure. I, it seems like they're. Ju- it's not so much lying in the, in the Hebrew midwives passages. It seems like they're just disobeying the command of the king. So, I don't know if that's the best example. Um, of course, you have modern day examples. Corrie ten, Corrie, Corrie ten Boom and others. You know, hiding Jews during during the Holocaust. So that that's kind of where I'm at. I would I invite people to correct my thinking on this. Obviously, the Bible does have many categorical, seemingly categorical statements that say, "Don't lie; it's evil. Don't ever do it." There's you know just you can Google that. There's tons of them. Um, but I do think ethics can be um, can be complex. I mean, we also have commands that say keep the Sabbath, and then people don't keep the Sabbath. Like probably everybody listening. Um, and it's all, you know, in its strictness, you know, or what about, here's another example, you know, what about drunkenness? Okay. Drunkenness, sin, Paul says it, uh, Proverbs say it several times. Um, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy spirit. But okay. What if you're in the wilderness and a tree falls on your leg and you're trapped and all you have is a dull, rusty pocket knife and a bottle and a, and a fifth of Jack a lot of Jack Daniels. Um, do you chug a bunch of Jack Daniels to numb the pain because you don't carry morphine on you so that you can saw through your leg and escape at least, you know, without your leg, whatever. Has this ever happened? Could there be a situation on earth when in lieu of morphine or some kind of painkiller, you actually enter into a state of drunkenness? Would God look down upon you and say, you evil son? You know, I, I, you know, or would he say like, well, okay, th- this is, this is kind of an exception that might prove the rule or something like that. So 
I don't know. That's kind of a dumb example, but just I, I think if we take some ethical norms, we might be able to find some exceptions where in light of other teachings of scripture, there might be some exceptions given certain certain set of circumstances. That doesn't mean every ethical norm has exceptions. I don't think adultery has an exception. And there's other, especially when it comes to sexual morality, I think that um, there is, yeah, I mean, I could probably think of maybe some, but I, I yeah, I, th- I think... Um, just because some ethical norms might have some exceptions doesn't mean they all do. So that that's where I'm at on this. I, I it's it's Austin. It's it's um it, it's an issue that I think philosophers and theologians have probably done a lot more work than I have. That's that's I've kind of given kind of a, a, a kind of a standard basic position I think um, and the reasoning behind it. But that's where I'm at. So love to hear your thoughts. All right, next question. Tisha wants to know about Halloween, Harry Potter, etc. What should we do? Tolkien and Lewis are full of magic and even occultist things, but people love them. <laughs> Tisha, well, you probably pointed out something that is quite common in Christianity, and that is the ever-pervasive problem of inconsistency. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think uh, with all of these things, I mean, and these are all very different to my mind. Uh, I think Lord of the Rings and, uh, you know, Lewis's, some of Lewis's stuff, you know, the screw tape letters and Harry Potter and then Halloween. Like these are kind, like each one is, is quite different, especially the literary works you've referenced and then Halloween. So I, I, you know, I think we would need to take, take each one of these separately and kind of, um, put it through the grind of a good solid Christian worldview. I think with all of these, I, you know, part of it's a matter of conscience, conscience, you know, if somebody is, um, just can't handle, um, screw tape lever, letters, they read screw tape, screw tape letters and they're having nightmares or whatever about demons or, you know, Harry Potter. And, you know, then, yeah, I don't, don't want to say like, you must read these or these are good. You better consume these works. You know, um, some people might just, maybe they have an, an occultist background, so they might be unhelpfully triggered by, by coming across stuff like this. Other people that might not have the same experience. Um, I have not read Harry Potter. Well, I read the first book. I have not watched the movies. I only know about the storyline from a distance. And even that's pretty sketchy. Um, people I know and respect that have read all the books and really enjoy them have told me that there are some of the most powerful Christian themes in Harry Potter, themes of redemption, themes of um, good and evil, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So I want to ask a question, not does something simply contain occultist, demonic, satanic views, but do they promote an occultist? Is that the right word? Occultist? That's what you use. I'm just using the word you used. Do they promote occultist values. I mean, the Bible contains all kinds of demonic and satanic activity, um, but it doesn't promote it in the sense of, Hey, this is good and worthy to be celebrated. So that, that's a big distinction for me when it comes to movies and, and other things, you know, does it, the question shouldn't be, does it contain sin? Because real life contains sin. The Bible contains tons of sin all over the place. The question is, does it promote it? Uh, so I think that's a firm distinction I would keep, want to keep in my mind. Um, Halloween's, you know, that was a little tricky. So I'm going to say with Tolkien, Lewis, Harry Potter, I'm going to say these are literary works that contain sin, contain magic, contain occultist things, contain demonic, whatever, but that doesn't mean it's promoting it. So I, I, I I think those, I'm going to say those works are not just fine, but actually are, are good and beautiful. 
Halloween's, you know, it's, that one's a little tricky for me. I, you know, I, what, I, according to some theories, it was originally a Christian holiday, right? I mean, there's debates on that, according to Wiki, at least, um, about the origins of Halloween. I think just because Halloween contains certain, you know, themes doesn't necessarily mean all forms of participation in all kinds of Halloween events are promoting demons and Satan and the devil. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, I would probably say if you do any kind of Halloween celebration, yeah, stay away from participating in or promoting occultist behavior and rituals. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's, um, I, I would, I would think that should be pretty clear. You know, some people who are very pro Halloween are like, you know, they often bring up the, the missional impact, you know, like, well, if we're going to be good, if we're going to engage society, then we need to engage in these things. Otherwise people think we're, you know, super weird and, you know, separatists, whatever. I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that can be overplayed a little bit. Um, as if people, you know, aren't going to come to Jesus unless we go trick or treating with our neighbors or whatever. I, I don't know. This is where I'm maybe more of a Calvinist than some people wish I was, but I, I, I just, I, I think sometimes the, a healthy, I don't, I don't like the term separatistic, but I, I think distinctiveness, distinctiveness, I think healthy, holy distinctiveness among God's people is missional. Like, I don't think missional is simply like participating in as much as many cultural uh, rituals that we can do. I think maintaining a, a distinct, sometimes separate or, or distant uh, way of life, I, I think that that isn't at odds with missional impact. So yeah, uh, it's a conscious issue. I think Tisha, I think, I think uh, don't be pressured into thinking certain things are good or evil. I think you need to think on your own two feet here and, and really um, weigh each thing individually. All right, next question. All right, Eric wants to know, why are over 80% of the LGBTQ community raised in a church? Uh, you're interested in my perspective. So so that that percentage comes from a, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, it's not that well known, I guess. It's well known in, in, among people who are engaged in the conversation. A study by Andrew Marin years ago, uh, which is contained in a book called Us Versus Us. I'm staring at it right now, actually where he surveyed 1,912 LGBT people. So he didn't have the cue for what it's worth. It's a minor detail, but um, he surveyed 1,912 LGBT people, at least 25 from every state, very thorough study, and found out that 86% were raised in some kind of religious environment. Um I think it was 2.9% of them were in a non-Christian religious environment, which is why I often say... Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this portion of the Patreon-only Q&A podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full-length episode and receive other bonus content like monthly podcasts, opportunities to ask questions, access to first drafts of my research and monthly Zoom chats and more, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw to join Theology in the Raw's Patreon community. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.